Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. In today's episode, professor, author, and Trinity Forum Senior Fellow, Dr. Joseph LeConte, will discuss the friendship and legacy of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He'll highlight how their refusal to become disillusioned and disenchanted in the aftermath of World War I allowed for some of the greatest works of literature in modern history. So the temptation to power and the use and abuse of science in the service of power becomes a huge theme in their works, and it's just no coincidence. They are deliberately pushing back, I think, in a way that, that some biographers have not maybe fully appreciated. They are pushing back in their writings against the totalitarian impulse and trying to defend the role of the individual, the choices that individuals have to make to push back against the will to power. Today's episode is an edited version of our conversation with Dr. LaConte from April of 2020. You can find the full video of this conversation as well as our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. By any measure, this has been a frustrating and unsettling time for all of us. But in the midst of uncertainty, it can be helpful and even encouraging to explore the real life examples of others whose lives, work and imagination and relationships were indelibly changed by the difficult times that they were in and the way they redeemed those times to leave the world a more thoughtful and grace-filled place. And it's hard to imagine two authors who were close and longtime friends who did more to influence the moral, literary, and spiritual imagination of new generations than C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. So it seemed especially fitting to consider the topic of what C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had to teach us about resilience and imagination at our own time. And we are so glad to be joined in that venture by the ever energetic and the ever enthusiastic Joe LaConte. Joe is a professor of history at King's College in New York and the author of several books, including The Searchers, The Quest for Faith in the Valley of Doubt, The End of Illusions, Religious Leaders Confront Hitler's Gathering Storm, God, Locke, and Liberty, which I seem to see on your shelf just behind you, Joe, and his newest release, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, which is in the process of being made into a documentary. Joe, it is great to have you here. It is just terrific to be with you. And I love the title of this talk, uh, Suffering, Friendship, and Courage, because you've been suffering through your friendship with me over the last couple of decades, and it's given you great courage. So it's terrific to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So Joe, for as long as I've known you, which I think has been over two decades now, Yes, You've been an avid fan and close reader of both Lewis and Tolkien. In fact, I think when I first read you, you were in the midst of hosting a Lewis and Linguini supper, where you were trying to introduce more people to the works of C.S. Lewis. And I think you continue those suppers. So how did you first discover Lewis and Tolkien and what caused you to love their works? Yeah, thanks for that question, Cherie. Uh, for for C.S. Lewis, it was my undergraduate days at the campus at the University of Illinois, where I would say I really became a Christian, committed my life to Christ, and then just stumbled upon mere Christianity in a bookstore. And then I'm hooked, because he's explaining the Christian understanding of life in a way I could grasp. Uh, for Tolkien, he came much, much later in life. I was doing my, my graduate work, my dissertation work on John Locke, by the way, uh, there in London, at, at the University of London. 
And after the movies come out, I decided I need to read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And so it was John Locke during the day and it was Tolkien at night in an, in an English pub. It was a great way to spend the evenings. Now, Joe, you're a historian and uh, both Lewis and Tolkien were soldiers and were on the front of World War I. It's been over a century since World War I. And so it's often, you know, we tend to forget just how, what a huge impact the war had on the public imagination and what disillusionment it caused. I was hoping you could just kind of walk us through and unpack some of the context of the time, uh, the way that the war affected the worldviews of people really all over the world, yeah. and the impact it had on both Lewis and Tolkien. Thanks for that question. And you know, there are so many wonderful biographies of both those men out there that I've benefited from. And yet I don't think there's been enough attention to the way in which both of their lives were really framed by war. They both fought in the First World War in the trenches in France, and then they had to live through a Second World War and everything in between. And it's kind of the in-between that is really pretty remarkable and in some ways terrifying, because after the First World War, all the hopes that were placed on this generation and European civilization, and then Europe is engaged in basically a mutual suicide pact in the trenches in France. They survive that, and then the mood in Europe not so much in the United States, but certainly in Europe, was a, a deep disillusionment with the ideals and the institutions of the West, our political institutions, religious institutions. And just think about what is set loose in the midst of the First World War. Not only the influenza virus, which killed more people than, than did the war itself, but new ideologies, new pandemics, if you will, communism, fascism, eugenics, materialism, these new ideologies that were given kind of a free reign in the aftermath of that First World War. And Tolkien and Lewis have a ringside seat to all of it there in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, as you point out in your book, at the very start of the war, there was a sense that this war would be easily won. Yeah. And over 16 million lives later, and division after division of young men being just thrown, uh, basically fed to cannons to either defend or take trenches. Uh, this presumably had quite an impact on the way people saw authority at the time. Yeah, it, it's, it's, at a couple of levels, Cherie, they begin to distru distrust their political authorities, no question about that, because it's the politicians who sent them into this war, uh, and the politicians who keep telling them that it's gonna come to a quick end. We just need another 10,000, 15,000, 50,000 men, and we'll turn the tide, but of course it never happens. They rush the stalemate. So there's that level of kind of disillusionment with, with authorities, but there's also a disillusionment with even the individual because the individual himself, the individual soldier is caught up like cannon fodder. And the idea of, of individual heroism or virtue or that your life could make a difference, that is obliterated for many, many young men and women after the war. You, know, you think about some of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's literary contemporaries, you know, whether it's, or perhaps a little bit earlier, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest yeah. Hemingway or Eric Murray Remarque, yeah. and there's such a sense of disillusionment. I mean, it was yeah. called a lost generation. But right. Lewis and Tolkien seem to have retained very strongly the ideal of heroism. What yeah. enabled them to respond differently to the same war? It's a terrific question. I'm still kind of grasping it. I'm still trying to, to, to plunge the depths of that. You have a T.S. Eliot, the wasteland, you know, kind of, kind of response to the war. And yet Tolkien and Lewis go on to, to write these epic, mythic tales of heroism and a fight between good and evil. How did they do that? Well, at, at a, we have to say initially, 
at a rock bottom level, their Christian faith gave them a kind of realism about human suffering and the problem of evil. They, were, they didn't get sucked into the utopian ideologies on the one hand, but neither could they become cynics about the grace of God and the dignity of man. They, they will not become cynics about those things. And I think they even will draw on some of their war experiences where they did see genuine acts of compassion, forgiveness, heroism, that they couldn't shake, they couldn't forget, and I think entered into their, their great epic works. Mm -hmm. Both Lewis and Tolkien seem to grapple a lot with, the, with ideas of power. You have the ring yeah. itself and Lord of the Rings as being one of the causes of great evil. And of course, C.S. Lewis wrote The Inner Ring, an essay you well know. How did the war shape their view of power? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's probably, certainly the First World War, but it's probably as much the Second World War as well. And the rise of these totalitarian powers, Sheree, that is really driving home to them the danger of the will to power. Because think about it, they start writing their, their really their epic works when the Nazis and the communists are on the march in the late 1930s. Tolkien starts writing The Lord of the Rings in 1937. Hitler has already torn up the Versailles Treaty. He's already absorbed Austria. And so he's on the march. The communists are on the march. Uh, Lewis will write the Space Trilogy, 1938. He'll start that, that kind of work. So the temptation to power and the use and abuse of science in, in the service of power becomes a huge theme in their works. And it's just no coincidence. They are deliberately pushing back, I think, in a way that, that some biographers have not maybe fully appreciated. They are pushing back in their writings against the totalitarian impulse and trying to defend the role of the individual, the choices that individuals have to make to push back against the will to power, right? So we're gonna talk about the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien in just a minute or two, but uh, both, of, both Lewis and Tolkien as young men went through experiences where in Tolkien's case, almost all of his close friends were killed at the front. And with Lewis, many of his closest friends were killed yes. at the front. Where yes. You know, the friendships they really invested in, the individuals they really identified with, yes. were suddenly gone. How does that kind of loss at a young age, you know, and of course, both of them talk about how the loss of a friend is really the loss of a civilization. How does that kind of loss at such a young age form their view of friendship, but also shape their literary imagination? Those are wonderful questions, and, we're, and I'm still exploring it. We'll certainly explore it in the film series that we're working on. You know, Tolkien had his own band of brothers going into the First World War. Three other men, the four of them, met, at, met in boarding school, and then they were off to Oxford, and then they were off to war together. And two of those close friends, Paris, another survived, Christopher Wiseman sur survived. Tolkien would name one of his, his sons after Christopher Wiseman. And the sense of so much has been robbed from them, that shared sense of camaraderie, the deep friendship, their shared moral vision, which they really had. You know, the young men, they want to change the world at 17, 18, 19. And then half of them are just gone. Lewis, it was the same. He lost most of his closest friends in the war. I think one of the things it gave them uh, uh, was, of course, they want to recapture that deep sense of camaraderie and sense of mission and purpose, I think, after the war. I think that's one of the reasons they were so determined to form their group of friends known as the Inklings at Oxford. And they were so devoted to that circle of friends, Lewis and Tolkien at the, at the core of it, but then other men would join in over the years. I think that war experience had a huge, a huge role to play in their commitment to friendship throughout their lifetime. Yeah. 
So how did Lewis and Tolkien become friends? <laughs> you know, it didn't start out well, actually. They met at a faculty meeting. And, you know, for, for a faculty guy like me, faculty meetings can be a real chore. This was probably one of the most important faculty meetings in the history of Western civilization. You know, in, in, uh, in 1926 is when they met at Oxford for the first time. And they didn't quite like each other. They were on different sides of a debate about curriculum reform. But then they began to spend some time together. Tolkien pulled Lewis into a little kind of a reading group. They were reading Icelandic sagas in their original languages. You know, only, only Oxford Dons would do that, right? But Lewis loved it. And they loved the kind of northern heroic spirit that was embodied in these works. And that's what they began to figure out that they loved together. They loved mythology. They love stories of great heroism and sacrifice, and of course, the real problem of evil, the tragedy of the human condition, but men and women fighting back against it. They love those stories, and that really drew them together. You'd mentioned a couple times the Inklings. And of course, this is a group that has had an incredible impact on the moral, spiritual, literary imagination of the world, yeah. of, you know, the world over. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the Inklings. So who yeah. were they? Yeah. What did they actually do when they got <laughs> You know, it's so amazing. They never, they never imagined it would become the kind of group, influential group that it did. Lewis wrote to a, a guy that he was inviting to join the Inklings, I think Owen Barfield. He says there were two, two requirements. You have a, you have a, a tendency to write and you, and you are a Christian. Those were the two qualifications. You write and you're a believer in the, in the Christian faith. There were probably, uh, scholars identify maybe something like uh, 19 different people would have passed through on a semi-regular basis through the years. And they met for the better part of 20 years. Every Thursday evening in Lewis's rooms, his academic rooms at Maudlin College, but then also at the Eagle and Child Pub on, on Tuesday mornings. I've been to both those places, of course. And what they did was they, they shared the works, the literary works that they were all laboring over. They would read aloud portions of it. Tolkien read most of the Lord of the Rings out loud to the Inklings. Lewis would write, would read aloud many of his works to the Inklings and receive this sort of serious, fierce, but also loving criticism and sharpening each other in the context of that week after week after week. It's a, a really a, an amazing group uh, of men. If I could mention maybe just one of those other men that's not well known uh, quickly here, Cherie. Uh, one of them was Owen Barfield. Barfield was one of the original Inklings. He knew Lewis from his early Oxford days as a student. They were friends for 40 some odd years. Barfield was a writer in his, in his own right. He was working at the Oxford uh, Literary Review when Lewis sent in a manuscript, one of his own manuscripts. So here's Owen Barfield reading a work from Lewis and he's loving it. And he starts writing a letter to Lewis to tell him how much he loves it. Well, Lewis has picked up at the same time a book from Barfield and he loves that. And he's writing a letter to Barfield and says, you've got to come join the Inkling. So it's, it's things like that, that just a kind of organic, a natural organic kind of coming together of these men. So even before the Inklings and even before Lewis's conversion to Christianity, he and Tolkien were friends. Now, I guess having developed from this faculty meeting, yeah. you describe in your book an important conversation that took place September 19th of 1931 that lasted into the wee hours of the night. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and how that conversation between friends changed the world. It really did. I think it's one of the most important conversations probably in the history of the world. It's, it's, it's not putting it too strongly. One of the most important conversations. 
you got to remember that Lewis was a, he grew up at a time when it was seen by the academic elites that Christianity was a, a myth, like all the other myths out there, the ancient pagan myths, there's no truth value to it. And he very much believes that as a young man, a young atheist. And then he meets J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a believing, serious Catholic. And, and Tolkien thinks about myths in a different way. The conversation they have on Addison's path, Addison's walk, which I've been on over there, uh, till three o'clock in the morning, they're talking with another man, Hugo Dyson, the three of them, particularly Lewis and Tolkien. They're talking about myth and they're arguing about myth. And could Christianity be anything more than just an old pagan myth? And what Tolkien helps Lewis to understand is that Christianity is, is, is in some ways like these other ancient myths in that there's the idea of the God who comes to earth on a great mission, a mission of redemption, to give his life for his people. Lewis loved that kind of idea when he saw, saw it in pagan literature, but not in Christianity. And what Tolkien helps him to see is Christianity is the myth that became fact. It's the true myth. It's the myth from which all the other myths are derived. They're hints and intimations of the great myth, the Christian myth that became fact. And that conversation, Lewis says, it just cleared away these prejudices and thinking. It opened the door to his mind. And he says later that, uh, as he wrote to one of his friends, uh, had a conversation with Tolkien last night. Um, it's, it was the immediate cause of his conversion to Christianity. It was, it was decisive for him. And within days, he becomes a committed Christian. You know, it's fascinating because they're talking about myth at the very time when around the world, myths are dying. Disillusionment reigns. Yeah. Why do you think myth became a portal to, to faith for Lewis at the very time that myths seem to be closing in the minds of other people's imaginations? That's a fabulous question, Cherie. I, you know, when your questions, I never get yes, no questions. I always get these, these amazing questions that I, I've hardly thought about. And it's, it's a question probably more for a professor of literature, but I'll take a stab at it. Oh, I'm sure you're up to it, Joe. <laughs> I'll well, your audience is gonna be more up to it than me, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, we think of myths as just falsehoods. Even today, we think, well, it's a myth, there's nothing to that. But a myth, a, a myth in a culture really represents, the best myths represent deep truths about the human condition, about our nobility, but also about our depravity, our sin, our weaknesses, uh, the combination, the tragedy of the human condition and what these myths represent. So qualities like heroism and sacrifice for a noble cause, those virtues, they're embedded in the best myths. They have this universal appeal. And I think Tolkien and Lewis, are, they want to use that genre because they want to reinvent the ancient myths to the modern mind, to, to hold on to these great truths of the faith. That's their strategy. And here we are with the results of that strategy, right? Yeah. And one of the things I'd love to get your thoughts on is the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien and other members of the Inklings. Uh, it was clearly so pivotal to their life. It, it had such an influence in their, their life, their thought, their imagination, their work. And one of the things that's interesting in both Lewis and Tolkien's work, friendship and courage is often linked. And there's often a theme of a character, whether it's a child or a hobbit, who is called to great difficulty and does not initially have the resources they need to meet that difficulty, but essentially gets called into the quest largely from the formation of both character and, and courage through friendship. And what did, 
to just get your thoughts on how Lewis and Tolkien, how did they regard the relationship between friendship and courage? I think it, it, they drew from different sources, Cherie. I think they, at, at some level, they did draw from those ancient great stories that they loved where they would see friendship, King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, those kinds of stories. But then also, I think their war experience as well shapes them. So what are they doing in their works? Think about Lucy, the character of Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, who has that moment when Aslan asks her to do something that she doesn't want to do. And she's afraid of where, where it's going to lead. And she tells herself, but I just, I just must do it. I just must obey. And that little act of obedience then, we're told all Narnia will be made free. The consequences of a little child's decision. And that is so deliberate on the part of these guys that she, in communion with her, with her siblings and these others, they're involved in this great task and quest. And of course, the Lord of the Ring is all about the fellowship of the ring, right? The fellowship of the ring. And I think Tolkien saw that in the trenches in the First World War, because he says specifically that his Sam Gamgee, he, he, and this is a, a pretty much an exact quote, my Sam Gamgee is indeed based on the, uh, the privates that I knew in the 1914 war and regarded as so far superior to myself. So he made those hobbits small of stature, but put them in community to remind the reader about this dynamic between friendship individuals who don't seem to matter but do but they have to have the help of their comrades and their companions along the way they can't do it by themselves frodo doesn't succeed on his own does he at the end of the day he can't he needs sam you know in addition to friendship being a spur to courage both lewis and tolkien but perhaps lewis in particular also seems to regard story in the same way you know and here i'm thinking about eustace scrub and we know right from the beginning that Eustace is an objectionable guy, not only from his <laughs> name, but Lewis also goes on to tell him that Scrub likes to read about imports, exports, and plumbing drains, but he's never read about dragons. And so he knows right away, there's something off with Eustace. But Eustace then confronts a dragon. He has no idea what to do. Uh, and worse, he eventually becomes one himself. And we're at a time now where some of us actually have a little bit more time to read than we may normally would. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on what Lewis in particular thought about the way that story, especially worthy story, forms our character and our courage. Yeah, our character, our courage, our moral imagination. And both of them are, are drawn to it, Tolkien and Lewis, of course, uh, as well. I'll say quickly on dragons, because you made me think of dragons. I went to the Bodleian Library here in November, there in Oxford for part of the film trip, and found a manuscript that's not widely known, uh, a talk that Tolkien gave on dragons and what they represent in, in, in mythology and in the world. They represent evil. And it's the idea of people coming together to battle this dragon. So for Lewis, you know, What's, what's, what's driving him in so much of his, of his writing about the, the, the heroic quest and what's important? Wow, I mean, think about heroism and think about how important he regards heroism in a time when it has been uh, discarded in the 1930s and 40s. People have simply let go of the idea that individuals can really combat evil. They're caught up in these epic forces beyond them, beyond their capacity to respond. But it's so crucial for them to, I think, to, to hold on to that. So how does story, how does storytelling help us to do that? 
One of the huge authors that was immensely important to, to Lewis was George MacDonald. And when, what MacDonald did in, in books like Fantasties that Lewis encountered as a young man when he's still an, an atheist, Lewis says that that story, it, it awakened his moral imagination. It, it taught him to learn to love goodness, to learn to love goodness. But it, it happened through storytelling. It didn't happen through philosophical argument for Lewis. He says very explicitly, it didn't necessarily challenge his conscience or his, his kind of rational reasoning processes. It got to his heart and helped him to learn goodness. And it's part of his conversion story. So there's something about a narrative that pulls us in and, and it kind of takes us unawares and it takes down our defenses. And that's something that Lewis went back to again and again, the power of a well-told story to sneak past our prejudices, right? And introduce us to beauty and to truth. You know, one of the lovely things about the Inklings is that combine friendship and story. And I think probably a lot of our listeners are, are thinking, you know, that sounds wonderful. Maybe not the ancient Icelandic languages, but the rest <laughs> of it sounds really wonderful. Not my cup of tea either, yeah. How does one form Inklings in one's own life? Yeah, I'll, I'll share a little bit from these guys to maybe give us some, some hints about that. They're deliberate about it and they're faithful. So not only are they meeting every Thursday night, I mean, through the Second World War, they continue to meet with all the demands on their time. And they're very committed to their own family relationships. They haven't let go of those. They're very grounded in their own family relationships. But this is something different outside of the family that they feel like they need, they can't really do without. So, and they took long uh, walks, sometimes multiple days at a time in the English countryside. And they'd hang out at these inns on their walking tours. Tolkien would complain that Lewis would, would walk with the cadence of a drill sergeant. He's always on, on the move. If I could read a, a couple of lines, Cherie, if I could, from yeah. Lewis's wonderful book, The Four Loves, from his chapter on friendship. He's, he's talking about friendship, and he's obviously hearkening back to the, to the friendships that he's established over the years with Tolkien, with Barfield, with these others. And here's how he describes what it can look like. He says, when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others, those are the golden sessions. When four or five of us, after a hard a day's walking, have come to our inn, and when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, and an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, he says, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? Wow. There's no better gift than that, but you have to work at it. You have to be committed to it, and it has to be about something important. Right. Lewis said they came to talk about literature. That was their goal. But then he says in a letter, but always we talked about something better. <laughs> something better. We don't always know what the better was, but boy, to have been a, a fly in that room, right? Absolutely. Well, Joe, as we wrap up, I'd love to give you the last word on Tolkien, Lewis, resilience and imagination. Yeah, I think maybe the best way to close is a, is a little portion from the Lord of the Rings, because I think it so captures their basis for hope and a source of great resilience for them. It's just a few lines, Cherie, from the Lord of the Rings. It's near the end of the quest with Frodo and Sam. They're in the land of shadow on the way to Mordor, and everything looks hopeless on the way to Mordor now. It looks hopeless. Hope fails, 
And in comes, Frodo tells Sam. We have only a little time to wait now. We are lost in ruin and downfall, and there's no escape. And then Frodo, he's just given up any hope or thought of ultimate success, but not Samwise Gamgee. Sam hasn't given up. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountain, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while, and the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Light and high beauty forever. Maybe that's the prayer for us, Cherie, that we have the heart and the faith and the imagination to see it. Joe, thank you for joining us. It's always a delight to talk with you. Thanks so much, Cherie. Great being with you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.